Luke, John, Acts, and Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we'll look there in just a moment. I want you to continue to uh, pray for Brother Dave Grossi and his family and, and his sweet mama. I miss having her in church, and she is uh, struggling right now up in Indiana. So pray for Dave and Debbie as they go through this. And pray for Mrs. Strassi, precious, precious lady. There are a number of signs of, of spiritual maturity. There are lists that are given to us. There's not one ultimate list. There are several lists that you can kind of look at. And then there are some uh, lists of maturity that are just kind of self-evident if you live long enough. And one of the primary evidences of, I'll get fixed here in a moment, of maturity is the ability to have a proper perspective. And I want you to just give me your mind here for about five or six minutes as we build our way into this message. A lot of people don't have a correct perspective. And when you have a wrong perspective, you, you make bad decisions and you become a miserable person. That's true for me and that's true for you. The definition of a perspective is your point of view. It's the way you see things. It ends up becoming your attitude. Your perspective is your attitude, but it's related to your, your point of view. In the middle of the word perspective is the word spect. Spect. You say, well, that's kind of evident, Rick. Well, it's the same word we get spectacle from, sword perception or the word see. Let me put it this way. Your perception is your lens in life. Now, you may not wear glasses, but you have a lens through which you saw life this past week. And when you got up this morning, you had a perspective. I don't care if you're 80 or you're 8. You have a perspective. And if your perspective is incorrect, you come to wrong conclusions. Let me give you a couple of examples. Your perspective affects your compassion. A person that lacks perspective lacks compassion. When I was thinking about this, uh, I thought about a number of scriptures uh, the Bible says in Lamentations 3, I think it's in verse 51, it says, Mine eye affects my heart. Mine eye affects my heart, but that depends upon what you see or what you don't see. Some people, it doesn't affect their heart because it doesn't affect their eye because they don't, they don't see it. And I thought about this story I read in a, a book a number of years ago, and it really, it really spoke to me. Some of you have heard this story, and uh, forgive me if you've already heard it, but it's so powerful. I wanted to insert it here. And here's how it goes, just a few paragraphs. Uh, it's a true story. I remember a, this didn't happen to me, but it's happened to this gentleman that shared the story. He said, I remember a, a many paradigm shift I experienced one morning on a subway in New York City. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some 
resting with their eyes closed. And it was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me, closed his eyes, oblivious to the whole situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's newspapers. It was very disturbing. Yet the man sitting next to me did nothing about it. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them just a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and softly said, Oh, you're right. I guess I, I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. And I, I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine what I felt in that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly I, I saw things differently. Now I want you to notice his use of the word saw. Suddenly I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. And my irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with a man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died. Oh, I'm so sorry. Would you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in that instance. Our perspective affects our compassion. A lack of perspective creates a lack of compassion. Now you say, well, how many people lack perspective? Well, it's a person sitting in your seat. We all do. We all do. We lack perspective with our, our spouse, the person we love the most, with our children, with our parents, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with our bosses. I know people that have become uh, senior pastors that were on staff and, and they've said, boy, I, I didn't know what it was like. I thought that that was easier. Maybe you got promoted to a, a job that your boss said, well, I tell you, if I had it, here's what I would do. And then they said, you know, I, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't understand. And had I known, I, maybe I wouldn't have said some things or I would have behaved a little differently. You see, uh, maturity comes with, with perspective. And sometimes that only comes with experience. Perspective not only affects our compassion, perspective affects our values. Your values change when you get a perspective. Your lens changes. Your, 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 your spectacle, your spectics, 
the way you perceive things change. The way you suffer changes. You know, the old saying is true. Um, maybe you've comforted people when they say they're nervous and, yeah, I've got this procedure next week. I'm going to learn, oh, what is it? Oh, that, that's hard. That, that's minor surgery. And you've heard the saying, you know, minor surgery when it's on you, major surgery when it's on me. And, and that's true. That's true. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, wherein ye greatly rejoice. And he's talking about this adversity they're going through. Though now for a season, if need be. Now, this is a perspective because when you're in suffering, when you're having a headache, he's, oh, oh, this is great. It's just a season. I'm just enjoying this. It'll be gone in a minute. When you're suffering, it doesn't seem like a season. And you have to maintain, sometimes not a physical perspective, but a mental perspective if you're able to. You ever had a kidney stone? I remember I, uh, I had my first kidney stone. I finally got in that position. Now, that position, let me tell you what, it's not a position of comfort. It's a position of, of least pain. So I'm there on the couch. My daddy comes home from work. He said, well, son, if you just get up and walk around, that thing will move. No, daddy, I don't want it moving. I don't want that thing moving. Then my daddy got one. Oh, really bad. I just want to say, hey, dad, if you just get up and walk around, that thing will move. But I, I didn't do that. You know why? I had a perspective. I said, no, I'm not going to do that to him. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, because sometimes we need suffering, to be like Jesus, to help people. Ye are in heaviness through manifold, all kind of temptations. And this does not mean a solicitation to do evil. The word temptations means trials, it's, it's plural. All types of trials. This morning I looked up the word heaviness. You know what it means? It means grief and sorrow. It doesn't mean the pressure, the pressure, the heaviness of the burden. It means the heaviness of the heart. Maybe it's a loss you've had. And you're going through this. And the Lord says that the trial of your faith, you know, an untested faith is not worth anything. That the trial of your faith, now look what God says, is much more precious than that of gold. Because gold perishes. It's not just more precious, it's much more precious than any amount of money. Your faith. Though your, your, your faith can be tried by fire, and they literally were tried by fire. I don't have time to go into it. might be found... And here's what God says, I, 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 want, I want to find you with praise and honor and glory in your trial and your suffering. Your perspective in suffering, it affects your values. Your perspective of trials affects your ability to endure adversity. When I go into a funeral home and they have a little book out there to sign uh, I have a couple of verses I sign, and one of them I most often sign is this passage, 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18. It's a perspective passage. 
maintaining a perspective of eternity for our light affliction. Oh, Lord, this isn't light. The word affliction comes from, from being pounded and being cut and being wounded. This is not light. This is serious stuff. This hurts. It's not light. For a moment, this has been going on for years. My loved one has had dementia for years. This is not a moment. This suffering, this pain is going on for a long time. It works for us. I don't see any good in this. All of these these expressions are their perspectives. And, and listen, if you have the wrong perspective, it's going to affect your attitude. They work for us a far more exceeding and eternal, eternal weight of glory in heaven. In heaven, I'll look back and there's no time. It's all healed. And I will see in eternity as I look back, I'll say, you know, that was just a little bit. And God used that in my life and he used it for me. And it was for my good and his glory. Now look at the next verse. While we look not. Don't stare at the things that are seen. Those are temporal. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things that is, look at the things which are, which are eternal. Your perspective determines your attitude. Now I can hardly preach this because I so poorly practice it sometimes. But your perspective of your trial affects your ability to endure in a proper way. Perspective has a lot to do with your with your maturity or it reveals your your immaturity. Now I want to kind of pivot and I want to introduce the message with that thought in mind of perspective. Perspective is why a lot of people don't get saved. And perspective is why a lot of people get saved and then they lose their love for Christ because they lose a perspective. People think they they don't understand how bad they are. And they don't understand how much that Jesus suffered for them. If you do not sense danger, you're not going to seek a solution. If you do not sense loss, you're not going to seek a Savior. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And let me just talk to you, those of you that seek to win people to Christ. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to help to get them lost. You cannot get saved until you're lost. I'm going to ask you a question. Have, have you ever been lost? Do you remember when you were lost? The Bible talks about remembering the pit from where you were hewn. You know, I was only lost, Now I was lost longer than that, but I can only remember when I was lost. For about a week of my life, I thought I was saved because my parents were Christians and they were leaders in the church. But I was miserable that week. I was so miserable because I knew that I was lost. Please listen to my heart. If you can't remember when you were lost, how do you know that you were ever saved? 
do you remember when you were under conviction? I'm not talking about crying and having emotional outbursts. I'm not talking about that. People respond differently according to, to their emotional constitution. That can be different. But do you ever remember when you were convicted? I'm going to tell you, when you, if a person's on death row and they're convicted and they hear guilty, they're going to remember that. Do you remember? I remember. The book of Romans is the best book on learning about salvation, and it's divided up into five sections. I'll just give you the first three real quick. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first part of 3 is about sin. And in that sin, he talks about how we've sinned. It talks about our condemnation, that I'm guilty before God, and that Jews and Gentiles, religious people and non-religious people, they're guilty before God. And that our mouths are shut, Romans 3.20. We have nothing to say we're guilty. Then at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, it's about, and into chapter 5, it's about salvation. And then in chapter 6, 7, and 8, it's about sanctification. But it's in that order, sin, salvation, sanctification. Now, that is a model for us. To help win people to Christ, but also presenting the gospel, but to help appreciate your salvation. Listen, no person is want to get, wanting to get saved until they see that they've sinned, that they've broken God's law. Why are you going to ask for mercy if you, don't, if you don't know that you're guilty? Salvation is asking for mercy. Have you ever seen yourself lost and in need before God? It's not about being religious. It's not about being confirmed. It's not about being a church member. It's about being lost before God. And you can do that when you're six years old and five years old. Daniel and I were talking this past week, and I remember when I, our children, I was a youth pastor, and I dealt with a lot of teenagers that weren't for sure they were saved, and I think some of them were, and some of them perhaps weren't. The truth is, is, I don't know. Those things are between them and God. It has to be revealed to them. The Holy Spirit has to turn the light on in their heart. But it's so tenuous and so difficult that when our kids begin to get up, I told Paula, I said, we're not going to push our kids. It doesn't mean we weren't going to expose them to the truth and to light, but we're not going to push them into making a profession of faith. I want them to come to us. We're going to be sensitive. We're going to present the truth to them. And I remember I was on a trip. I was up north with some pastor friends in New Hampshire. And we were homeschooling. And I think Jeremiah was five years old. And we were in a section. And part of the section was studying the life of Jonathan Edwards. And in that particular area, we were studying his sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Someone said one time that uh, another sermon is God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. Well, that's the truth. But sinners in the hands of an angry God. And boy, it was to read that. I'm telling you, that is a very visual sermon. Sometimes I get tickled at preachers that say, "Don't, don't use stories. You know, just just give the truth. Well, if you read the Bible, there's stories. Jesus was a master storyteller. 
And if you teach, learn to use stories. And I told Paul, I said, now, Jeremiah's going to ask you a lot of questions. He'd been asking me some, but he's going to ask you a lot of questions. And sure enough, at the fourth night, she called me. She said, you're right, he's asking a lot of questions. I said, what's he saying? And she said, I want to be saved. I said, well, wait till, wait till I get home. Not because she could not have done as she could have. I don't want to communicate that. Paul is better with kids than I am. But because of the age and, and, and so forth, and she agreed with that. And I was coming home two days. I got home and I sat down with him. Sin, salvation. Do you remember when you were sinful? And the reason we love Christ, listen, the reason we love Jesus even the reason we love the church, the institution of the church, is not because my mom and dad loved it. It's because you love the Lord. Because when, I'm, when I've lost my way and I'm discouraged, as you help me to love him, as you point me in the right direction, you're my friends. And hopefully I help you to do that when you're down. And everything that's precious and good, it helps me to, to be better and to love him. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, Unto you therefore which believe, the personal pronoun he, it's speaking of Christ, he is precious. He is precious. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. The book of 1 Peter has five chapters. Five times in the book of 1 Peter the word precious is used. The book of Second Peter has three chapters, two times in Second Peter. The word precious is used, precious blood, precious like faith, precious Jesus. He is precious, that means to esteem at a most high price, to the highest degree. I use it in that way, Lord, you, you, you are precious to me. This is my perspective. I have a perspective. You're not just a, another idol. I put up on a on a list with I love baseball. I love chicken. I love you. No, no. This I, I don't love Jesus like that. I think it was Lefevre wrote the song. Without him, I could do nothing. Oh Jesus, oh Jesus, where would I be? What would I do without you? That's one reason I love. Good songs because of the lyrics. We've been looking about good news. And I want to read the passage. I'm, I'm a little bit out of time. My voice is gone. And let me give you a reason. I will go as far as I can today on why we have good news. I have good news for you. He came to ransom and to forgive and to heal your heart and your hurts. Even though we don't deserve it. But we have good news because we're able to discover genuine security. Security is not found in money. It's not found in people. It's not found in a job. It's not found in health because every one of those things can change. I told Paula the other night, April turned 30. We were talking about ages that we that, that troubled us. And I said, well, I, she said, well, I didn't like 30. Was it 30, Paula? Yeah, she didn't like thirty. I said I didn't like turning. I didn't like turning twenty-five. That was my age. 
And I, I won't go into all the reasons why, but I didn't like turning 20. I said, anything else, 40 didn't bother me. I said, I don't like turning 65. And she said, well, you just toughen up. She needed a perspective that day, no compassion. I'm just kidding. Kind of. Uh, you know, I, I'm just troubled, troubled a little bit with it. But when I have, when I have my security in Christ, he doesn't change. I wasn't ready to lose my father. I wasn't ready to lose my sister. I wasn't ready to lose my mom. I wasn't ready to lose friends. Some of you have had to say goodbye to your husbands, your spouses, your close friends. I've never been good at goodbyes. I never have. But there is a heaven. I want to read lyrics. He, listen, he will hold me fast. The word fast is tight. You know, here's a word. It's not wrong for you to say this, but it's not going to help you. Well, just, just hang on. Because there's going to reach a time in life when you can't hang on. You don't feel like it. You're not mad at anybody. You don't have the emotional or physical energy. I can't. Well, hold on tight to the Lord. Well, well, that that's kind of tenuous. He, he will hold me fast. Your security is not in the strength of your faith; it's in the object of your faith. I, I am very, I, I am one of the most insecure people you've ever met. But I'm one of the most secure people you've ever met when it comes to Jesus. When I fear, my faith will fail. He will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. But he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast for my life he bled and died christ will hold me fast justice has been satisfied this is permanent this is fixed justice has been satisfied he will hold me fast raised with him to endless life He will hold me fast till my faith is turned to sight and he will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so he will hold me fast. These are very biblical lyrics. But for me to rest in that kind of God, I must know and accept the kind of God that he is. And you will never appreciate the good news until you know the bad news. God put Adam and Eve in a garden, the Garden of Eden, Garden of Paradise. That's what it means, a beautiful place. It's a foretaste of heaven. And he said, you can have anything you want but one thing, one tree. By the way, love is always tested. If if, If it can't be tested, it's not love. If it can't be sinned against, it's not love. Some people said that God did not give Adam and Eve the the will to sin. Well, then, then he could not have given them the will 
to love him. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And he commanded, this is the first commandment in the Bible, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one, thou shalt not eat of it, thou shalt not. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is the penalty. You eat of it, you're going to die. The word death means separation. I've taught you this. When you see a body in the casket, it's the body, but the soul and the spirit are separated from it. And then eternal separation is when the body, soul, and spirit are permanently separated from God. When a person is lost spiritually, you see their body, but their spirit is separated from God. They don't love God. They don't love the Bible. They don't love songs about God. They don't love prayer. They don't have an appetite for God. They are spiritually dead. And every person is born like that. You have not always been a Christian. I was born lost. You've been born lost. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. A wage is something you get for something you do. And the penalty for sin is separation from God. Are you here today? Are you separated from God? You can be a church member, be separated from God, and be lost. Your parents can be Christians. Mine were, and I was separated from God as a nine-year-old boy. But God has a gift for you, and it's not death, it's life. Eternal life, not eternal death. That's what hell is. You don't live in hell, you die in hell. You rot in hell eternally. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This life comes through a personal relationship through Jesus Christ. And, and, and the penalty was death, and he died for you, Romans 5, 8. But the Bible says Christ died for us, Romans 5, 6. He died for the ungodly. He paid the penalty for your sins and for my sins. And if you receive Christ... And you rest, that's my favorite synonym for faith, if you rest upon that gift, that offering, God forgives you, He cleanses you, He gives you a new standing, He writes your name in heaven, He blots out your sins. I'm sitting in a chair that I've never looked under. I don't tested every Sunday. I didn't a while ago. I just sat in it. I rested in it. I'm resting in it now. I put my weight fully upon it. That's what faith is. I heard a story about uh, this man was driving down, down the road, not driving. He was uh, riding his horses, driving his horses. His two horses were leading a team of horses, and um, he had a whole bunch of uh, bags of, of of uh, grain and so forth, and he came across, and there was a man um, <clears throat> he picked up on the road, and he had carrying a big grain. He said, where are you going? He said, I'm going that way. Get in. I'll give you a ride. No need for you carrying that. The man said, thank you. He got up in the wagon with him, and after about, about a half mile, he looked over, and the man still had that bag on his shoulder. He said, put it, put it in the wagon. He said, well, you're kind enough to carry me. You don't need to carry my my bag too it's almost like it's silly we're silly you get on the airplanes I, I don't want to put all my weight down 
Listen, when you come to Jesus Christ, he knows what you've done. You can rest. But you don't rest in your goodness. You you give him your sins. That's the good news. He doesn't want all the good things you've done because they've all been tainted. And you give him all of your sins. Do you know what he gives you? Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, when you trust him, when you receive him, when you receive his gift, he justifies you. He changes your record. He sees you legally different. Your record is not only expunged and purified, he gives you the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. He sees you as holy as Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. Look at this, peace with God. And here it is again, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word peace there means quietness, serenity, rest. I have peace with God through Jesus, not the church. Therefore, being justified by faith. I'm not saved by faith. I'm saved by grace through the means of faith. And, and the word peace with God is a legal standing. Now, watch this. After you have peace with God, you're a candidate for the peace of God. Now, God can give you peace because he is a God of peace. Stay with me. He is a God of peace. He doesn't want you to be his enemy anymore. Look at verse 10. More if when we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were rebels. We used his name in vain. We did not want him to reign, R-E-I-G-N, to be our authority. We rebelled against him. But now I'm, I, I, I'm at peace with him. My record has been clean. I am not a good man. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. But I'm a candidate. You get the peace of God when you surrender your life to him. And he begins to put your life in order. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 22. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. No peace. In Romans chapter 3, there's a list of the characteristics of unbelievers. In verse 17, it says, The way of peace have they not known. And the word way means the journey. Your life has not been a journey of peace. You haven't known a journey of peace. Now look, this is, this, is, this is not just your story. This is my story. Everybody has, a, has an hour, has a week, has a month, has a year, has a season, has a decade. You want to forget. But you don't forget it by getting baptized. Only Jesus can forgive you because you offended him. You offended a holy God. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 1, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You only get righteousness from God, and it is a gift from him. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He not only gives you eternal life, he gives you eternal righteousness. It's on your record. And then he helps you become like Jesus day by day. It's called sanctification until you go to heaven. And one day you're totally like him. Notice the first word in verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith. 
That means go back and look at the other verses. Chapter 4 is about justification. It's about how that God justifies you, how that He declares you righteous. Notice in chapter 4 and verse 5, the Bible says, But to him that worketh not, you can't earn it, you can't barter for it, you can't trade for it, you don't deserve it. None of us do. Well, how do you get it? You believe on him that justifies ungodly people. The only candidates for God's righteousness are ungodly people. Ungodly people. And his faith, the faith of an ungodly man, and that's every person in here, is counted. It's a legal term. It's a financial term. It's imputed from God's record to your record. It's imputed for righteousness, though we don't deserve it. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 17, And the work of righteousness shall be peace. He speaks peace to your conscience because your, your, rec- your record is clean. It's pure. And you don't deserve it. That's why you love Him. You, you get new spectacles. You get a new vision. You see things different. I don't deserve this, Lord. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. God's law can never condemn me forever. That's why in Romans 7 it says His law is holy. I can fulfill His law now, but only through His Spirit, as His Spirit lives through me. But when I was lost, it condemned me. But it will never again condemn me. He enables me to fulfill His law. In a humble way, not where I boast about it, not where I compare myself among myself with other people. Notice in verse 9 of Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Look at this, through him, not through church membership, not through your denomination, You're saved from God's wrath against sin because of Christ, because of His blood on Calvary. And that's the basis of your justification, of the declaration of your righteousness before God. I hope you're getting this. I'm doing the best I can. Verse 10, For if when we were enemies, and we were before we were Christians, but now we are, we were reconciled to God. I like that. I've been made right with God by the death of His Son. That was the price of the cross. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Notice His death and His life. I am saved by Christ's death and by His resurrection. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, the Bible says that He was delivered for Our offenses, that is my sins. He was delivered for the cross for my sins, but raised again for my justification. And now he's at the right hand of God interceding for me. Now stay with me. I can never be lost again. I've talked to a lot of people before, and some people say, well, I don't don't believe that. How come? Well, if I believe that, I would... I would sin. I'd say, well, let me in on a secret. I do sin. But I don't like it. It troubles me. 
And I said, the truth is, the reason that God saves you and he keeps you, it's not for your benefit, it's for his benefit, it's for his namesake. It's for his justice. Calvary is justification. It's the just thing to do. How how can God forgive a guilty sinner and still remain just and holy? There was only one person that could make the payment. That was Christ. He was the only one. And that's why it says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know, there are times I'm troubled by the justice of God. Even though I'm a Christian, I'm not really looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ. Even though there will be rewards there because I know my heart. But he's faithful and just to forgive me. Listen, justice is your best friend as a Christian. Because he keeps his word. He, he keeps his name. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 23. For they, speaking of the Old Testament priests, they truly were many priests. They had a lot of priests. Because they were not suffered to continue or allowed to continue by reason of death. They died, and they had to have another one to succeed that one, and they had this process of succession. And there was not just one high priest. October the 10th, every year, the, the, the sacrifice was given for the people and for him, for his sins. Look at the first word in verse 24. But this man, this is Jesus, but this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, He's still my high priest at the right hand of the Father because he paid the price and he sat down. Wherefore, he is able also to save them, not just to forgive you, but now pay attention to the way this is worded. It's misunderstood sometimes. Sometimes we read this and it says save them to the uttermost. And we think, well, that means no matter how bad you've sinned, he can go to the uttermost. Well, that's taught in the Bible, but it's not taught here. That's not what it means. He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God God by him. The word uttermost means the entire full amount. It means to the end of time. He is able to save me to the full amount of time. And here's why. Because he ever lives to make intercession for them. My salvation will be intact as long as Jesus lives. Not because I'm good, but because He is good. And He's my Savior. And listen, friend, that gives me great security. It gives me a, a, can I say this, a humble confidence. A very, I don't even like the word confidence, but a humble confidence. Look at verse 2 of Romans 5. By whom also we have access to. By faith into this grace wherein we stand. We have access. I have access by faith into God's grace to stand in His presence. I have a standing with God. I'm not only His Son. The Bible says in Revelation 1.5, I am a king. He is the king and He's made His children kings. Now we're not, we're not, it's a delegated thing. We're not like even sub under him. We're way down. But he has made us princes and kings, the Psalms say. And he has given me a standing, but it is a standing by grace. And by faith, 
I, I take in a humble way, I take this thing, God, thank you. I can call him my father. My favorite word for him is my father, my savior. The word access there means entry to see a king through the favor of another. The favor is the Lord Jesus Christ. My kids have access to me that nobody else has. My family has access to me that nobody else has because of our relationship. I have access to the Father. I don't have to earn it. I can't buy it. It was given to me at the cross. When you went into the temple um, in the early church, there was before Calvary, before the early church actually, there was a there was a a, a veil that separated the Jews. They could not go into the holy place. Only the high priest could. He went in once every year, as I mentioned. But when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in two. And here's what's interesting: from the top to the bottom, they said it was as thick as a man's hand, and and a team of horses couldn't pull it apart. It was so thick and all the way across. But God tore it from the top. To let them know that, hey, you have access. Mark fifteen thirty eight. the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And then there was a court called the Gentile court. And there was a, a sign that there was a wall and a sign posted. And it said, if any Gentile goes beyond this wall, he will be killed. They actually found a sign that said that in Hebrew. Um, the uh, archaeologists did. And so when Jesus died, he tore down the veil and he tore down the wall. So Jews and Gentiles, that means anybody can go in. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off, that's the Gentiles, were now made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who's made both Jew and Gentile one in Christ. And he's broken down the middle wall of partition. That was that wall between the us and God. It's not there. You can talk to God anytime. Listen, if, if, if you're in the emergency room and you can't get in touch with your pastors and I don't mind you calling, I don't want you to feel like, oh man, what are we going to do? The pastor's not here. God, God hears your cries. We have not trained you and don't believe this, that we're, you have to have a pastor or a spiritual leader in this church. Oh, thank God, somebody here that can pray. No, you can pray. You pray for them. God hears your prayers. You have access. Ephesians 2, 17 through 19. And he came and preached peace. See the peace? To you which were afar off. And to them that were nigh. Gentiles are far off. The Jews were nigh in that sense. They were closer, but they weren't saved. For through Christ... We have both access, both Jew and Gentile, everybody, by one spirit under the Father. Now, therefore, we're no more strangers and foreigners. Why are you acting like one? But we're fellow citizens. We're, we're, we're brothers and sisters. We live in the same home with the saints and of the household of God. Romans 5, 2, by faith into this grace wherein we stand. My place of safety is at the cross. It's right here. My place of safety is at the cross. My place of security, that's what security is, is at the cross. 
Curtis Hudson, who preached here, right here where I'm at. Actually, it was behind just a little bit, about three or four feet at the time. He said this one time, and it sounds blasphemous, but it's not when you understand it. He said, if I go to hell, it's Jesus' fault. And I'm going to borrow his words. If I go to hell, it's Jesus' fault. Because I'm, I'm a church member, but I'm not trusting the church. And I've been baptized, but I'm not trusting the baptistry. And I try to do good to people, and I'm not trusting any of that. I am trusting the name and the blood and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, period. And if that's not sufficient, but it is. I've read it to you. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news. Some of you, you're, 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 you're so insecure. I, I, I don't say this. God knows my heart. I don't say this to rebuke you. And there are reasons for it. Because of maybe your past, your, your father, your just some coaches, some things, words that you've let come into your heart. Well, I'll show them. I, I'm gonna, we watched a video with the men last night. I'll show them. I'm going to measure up. You'll never measure up. You can't measure up to God. But God says, I want to give you something. I want to give you forgiveness. I want to give you significance. And I want to give you everlasting life. But it's all found in me. And you're going to have to humble yourself and repent, which means to change your mind that you're not good, but I am good, and you're not the Savior, and I am the Savior. And come to me, and I'll give that to you. And it, it will make you humble, but it will give you safety. And it will make you sweet, but it will make you secure. I want you to bow your heads with me, if you would. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to ask you a question as we close today.